welcome to the MIT Press podcast. I'm Sam Kelly, and you're currently listening to a soundtrack produced by artist and author Kristin Galino. And in a moment, you'll be listening to me interviewing John Troyer, author of the new book, Technologies of the Human Corpse, which will be published in April. Hi, John. Thanks for speaking to me today. Of course. Thank um, you for inviting me. So you're the director of the Centre for Death and Society at the University of Bath. You're the son of a funeral director, and you're the author of this new book, Technologies of the Human Corpse. And before we talk about your book specifically, I wanted to ask you about death studies. It's an area that MIT Press are publishing in more frequently, and it seems to be an expanding field. And I was wondering if you could tell me you know, your thoughts on the growing popularity as... Uh, as the field kind of expands and uh, why you think that occurrence in popularity might be happening. Absolutely. Uh, death studies as a recognized field or even potentially a discipline, um, I mean, it's, it's been around as a, let's say, as a title or a category for over 20 years now, largely in the UK as an interdisciplinary field involving arts and humanities, but also social sciences and and the human sciences. There, There's also been simultaneously a another kind of death studies in the United States, which has largely been around death education. So that was more in psychology. But nonetheless, there's been a field that there have been fields or overlapping fields of study death since the 1970s. As for the, the popularity now, which I think is really the, the crux of what you're getting to. So there have been people who've been working on, on the topic of topics of death, dying, and the dead body explicitly since the 1990s in academia, actually earlier than that. But more recognized individuals since the 1990s. Uh, and if I'm honest with you about it, I think that it's always been a field of study for people in academia. What we've lacked have been departments or research centers. So the Center for Death and Society, which is founded in 2005, it's launched at the International Death Dying Disposal Conference, which is a semi-annual conference that year was in Bath. And that conference launches this research center, and there wasn't really a research center of its kind, certainly in the UK, that was an interdisciplinary study center on these topics. So there's been a kind of constant, or what I would say is pretty regular flow of individuals working on it. The the popularity, or sometimes what I describe as the visibility of the field, kind of comes and goes, and is often reflected in um, journalism of the time. Because generally, what happens is this: is is death is a constant. Human death is a constant. As in humans, we keep dying. We're pretty good at it as a species, and so because of that, it's a constant topic. If that makes any sense, death will always be there. Dead bodies will always be there. And so what, what you end up with is our editors and, and journalists who suddenly decide, oh, this is an interesting topic. No one's written about it. But actually, if I'm honest, it has been written about more often than not. Uh, and indeed, in my own personal experience as, as, as a member of the Center for Death and Society as, and director of the Center for Death and Society, I've been interviewed multiple times by the same newspapers, reporters from the same newspapers who don't know that their own newspaper has written the same exact story they're writing a couple years later. No, that's not to say it's unimportant. It's not, or that there's anything, I think, necessarily too fashionable about that. However, what I would say is that there is a popularity or, again, a visibility that comes and goes with a certain kind of interest usually reflected in in more popular reporting and to a certain extent sort of pop culture but that the beauty of death studies as a field is it's always there so yeah. we could be having this conversation in 20 years and it would still be there 
if that makes any sense. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah, it, yeah. It does. I suppose as well, it, it forms pretty fundamental topics in lots of other disciplines and yes, areas. Yes, can. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, for example, um, I have colleagues in my department at the University of Bath. The Center for Death and Society is in the Department of Social and Policy Science, which is a social science department. I'm not a social scientist. Or my host is in sociology. Uh, I was very clear when I was hired that I was not a sociologist, <laughs> which I was told that's okay. My own background is arts and humanities, critical theory, science and technology studies, bioethics, a whole number of things, not sociology. Um, however, we do have a new group of colleagues who are criminologists who are, in, who are now part of our department. They are interested in looking at deaths in prisons and uh -huh. end-of-life care prisons as criminologists. So we're now mm -hmm. working with them on a specific topic, but a very, very pressing topic related to end-of-life care for a elderly uh, imprisoned population. So that's just one example of a multitude yeah. of directions you can go with that. And specifically about your book, I wondered if you could talk about the interdisciplinary elements of the book, specifically your choice to include the poems and the memoiristic elements, because I think that fundamentally really changes what kind of book it is for the better. It, and I was wondering if you yes. could talk about that a little bit. Sure. Well, Technologies of the Human Corpse is a, is a it's a book that is taken on many forms, many many iterations, many guises before it finally got to the between the covers at MIT Press, as it were. So parts of the book started 20 years ago. Other parts of the book started less than two years ago. So 20 years ago, I was working more around my interest in the connections between the dead body and technology or how living humans use different kinds of technologies to create different kinds of realities or appearances for dead bodies. That's a fancy way of saying something like embalming or photography, right? What are those 19th century relationships? So that's actually some of the stuff I started doing when I was in grad school. Uh, because what I was interested in was just not in anything that could be described as technological determinism, because I think that's always, that's tricky. You don't ever want to blame or say the technology is doing this because it's not, it's the humans using it. But uh, along the way in working on this book and ha having one university publisher, which will remain nameless, totally flake on me in what I regard as a very unprofessional manner. Uh, and then Matt Brown, my editor at MIT Press, contacting me and MIT truly rescuing me from the middle of the wilderness with this book. Along the way of doing that, then my sister Julie, my younger sister Julie, was diagnosed with brain cancer uh, at age 43. Mm -hmm. uh, well, actually, she was 42 when she was diagnosed. Glioblastoma, multiform cancer uh, on the right side of her brain. Lived in Italy and had lived in Italy for many years as a school teacher. And she suddenly, as I was, you know, working on this book, and I should perhaps put working in scare quotes because I wasn't working on it like I, I should have been, but then everything that happened with her put into focus end of life questions, death and dying questions that were very much a part of my own biography, in part because, as you said, my father uh, was a funeral director and I'd grown up around death and dying, but not in this way. So as we begin to get closer to the book being done here matt brown deserves enormous credit as my editor telling me you know john i think it's a good time for your book to come out i think the time is right because <laughs> i was bond and everything but he was right no i i i've told matt this he deserves immense credit for this uh i said matt here's what i want to do i want to write because or i should take a step back matt had already told me you know you you have to write about your personal experiences with this book somehow which i had resisted because i was like ah it's, oh. that's like that's more memoir. I don't think of myself as a memoir person. You know what I mean? Mm. 
which is ironic because I have a history and I've, I have a theater background, a, a live art, live performance background, and I've done one man shows okay. uh, about, actually I did a one man show after my PhD was done called on, on the untimely death of John Eric Carter PhD, which was more or less about writing my PhD. And that sounds like a really obnoxious kind of show, but actually what it was was about how ridiculous I became trying to get my PhD done. So that became, yeah. that's always the vector I've taken or also to poetry with memoir. Anyway, Matt said, you need some autobiography in this because you yourself are a big selling point for this book. And I was like, okay. And that was before everything happened to my sister. My sister is diagnosed with brain cancer. And suddenly I said, I need to write about my sister dying. And Matt said, yeah. And I said, and furthermore, what I want to do is I've been writing a, a series of poems uh, called Watching My Sister Die, which became a, a series. It didn't start out as a series, but it became a series that continues today. And I said, and I want to intersperse those between the chapters. And Matt said, okay. Uh, and again, to MIT Press's eternal credit and flexibility in, in doing something that is irregular for what might be described as a more academic-ish type book, right, yeah. that you find these pieces put in there. But what I will say is the decision to do that one both profoundly changed the book, and I agree it is a, it's a different book now because it begins in the preface with you know, the opening line, I needed to finish this book before my entire family died. In the end, then, in the coda, it's about planning for death, planning for funerals, which is something my sister and I had talked about in July of 2018, when it was clear she was dying. In fact, it was clear she was dying in April of 2018, when we, we were all in Italy for her birthday, and it was clear that would be her last birthday. It was her 43rd birthday. Uh, and then in July of 2018, it would have been July 13th, um, that's when I told her she was dying. And I think it was the experience of telling my sister she was dying in part because it just wasn't being talked about by her medical team, um, that I knew I needed to write about it that way. And, and indeed she died on July 29th of 2018. So I think, I think incorporating all that material into the book to me became very important. And I think it became important because I, I have reflected more and more upon how in the field, as we were talking about the field of death studies, I do wonder how much those of us who work in death and dying engage with our own experiences with this topic in the yeah. ways we can tell other people to do, right? And, and that becomes one of the great, the great paradoxes of people who work in end-of-life care or death and dying. Are we as good with ourselves as we often tell people to, to, to do it themselves? And th this also became a huge issue because there, so there's a postscript to the preface that I added in December. Yeah. that involved my own father because my father had a massive cardiac arrest uh, at the Minneapolis St. Paul International Airport. He and my mom had just returned from a cruise in the Bahamas uh, and were in the airport. He had a massive cardiac arrest, died. He had cardiac death but was resuscitated and then was in a hospital in the ICU for two weeks, another week in a, just in the hospital itself, and then another month in rehab. Now, he's now home, so the story ends out pretty good. In fact, he's, he's, I'm in Wisconsin right now with my parents, visiting them to check on them for some medical appointments. Oh, great. Uh, and he, he's okay. He made it, but we, we didn't know if that was going to be the case. And indeed, when I write this postscript, it looked like he wasn't going to make it. And the reason I flagged this all up is because what we had done in preparing for this pot potential scenario for both my parents was create advanced directives. They declared that I had power of attorney for healthcare decisions in writing, had all the paperwork. 
and I was confronted. My mom and I were both confronted with a situation, which is in my dad's case, he kept hitting all the gray areas in all his advanced directives, meaning he said, if this happens, this happens. But he kept sort of defying all the possibilities, which was good, but it meant we weren't entirely sure where to go with what decisions to make. Now, ultimately, we made all the right decisions. We did all the right things. uh, We prepared in all the best ways we could. But even then, it was not uh, as clear cut as you might imagine it could be, and and yeah, so this that, is something we're seeing more and more now. That that perfectly leads on to the next thing that I was going to ask you. Actually, is about um, instances in the book where you explore the way technology complicates categories surrounding something that I would <laughs> yes. guess mo- most people think of it as maybe the most binary opposition you could think yes. of. Yes, and the, and I was wondering if you could talk about the way that technology has challenged those categories, the language around those categories, you know, kind of the legal, medical, the way in which different terms actually kind of slip and slide over each other in a in a kind of unexpected way. Yes, yes, <laughs> so let me give you an example, and I have I have actually I've been reflecting on this particularly in my dad's case, more than you can even imagine. Because he, in his advanced directives, in the power for the power for attorney for healthcare uh, decisions, he has this sentence, and I'll read the sentence to you, because I, I have literally, I have it typed up and ready to look at on a digital sticky note on my computer. That's how much I've been thinking about it. I thought about it in December and partly January, but it says, so I direct that I'd be permitted to die naturally any use of life-sustaining procedures shall be short-term, in parentheses, one week or less. That's the quote. Right. So what's a life-sustaining procedure? <laughs> what, what, is, what is a life-sustaining technology? And this is both an abstract theoretical question, one that I would absolutely throw at my undergraduate final year students in the sociology of death class that I teach, which they would all muse and mull over and write about to be like, yes, what are these technologies? What are these procedures? But in my dad's case, it became very real because we had to make a decision, my mom and I did, about does he, for example, get a feeding tube, which would be put into his stomach and short term, because if he didn't get the feeding tube, he would absolutely die because he wouldn't have been receiving nutrition. However, is that a life-sustaining procedure that could potentially become not short term, but long-term? And have we then just violated what his pre-existing wishes were, are? And in his advanced directive, <laughs> he stipulated, I'm only laughing because it all worked out, right? I, I don't think yeah. I'd be chuckling. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> yeah. like, it's easier to look back now and be like, well, that was, whew, that yeah. was a lot. Um, yeah. Yeah. But he has in his advanced directive, it stipulates that I would prefer not to have something like a feeding tube, especially if I'm in a persistent vegetative state, which he was not, because one of the concerns about his cardiac arrest was he had he had, had uh, a lack of oxygen. He had had hypoxia, which led to um, yeah. brain injury. He also stipulates, though, that if it's deemed to be medically necessary by medical staff, that something like a feeding tube could be used. So in this in this really surreal moment in which my mom and I are in my dad's hospital room, he's out of the ICU now. He's in a regular hospital room under observation for neurological uh, damage. We're talking with the weekend medical doctor, who's very good, and he 
uh, my mom and I are talking next to my dad's bed and we're going through the advanced directive. And I said, you know, my dad, we're talking about the feeding tube and my, so my dad's got this thing about if it's medically necessary and we're talking, talking and all of a sudden my dad out of nowhere, cause he did have consciousness, but he he had regained some speech and he regained speech, right? Cause he was fully intubated. He was wired up on everything you can imagine. They removed the breathing tubes. They removed all the tubes. Cause we said we should see if he can breathe on his own. He did fine with that. So he was able to regain some speech. We're talking and all of a sudden out of nowhere, he goes, yes, if medically necessary, and like out of nowhere so he was following what we were talking about and we're like okay so we put a feeding tube in right and that is a life-sustaining procedure and we had to do that because if we didn't do it he would surely die he would absolutely have died i know that for a fact but we wanted to give him a chance to see what would happen now it ended up working out fine he's actually since had the feeding tube apparatus removed that happened uh, a week and a half ago two weeks ago it was short term he was actually then able to get onto regular food very quickly but had we not done that he would have died and he wouldn't have recovered the way he has and I, the reason i'm bringing all this up is because in my own imagining before this entire situation had happened i would have said no feeding tube more than likely yeah. no feeding tube in part because I think we tend to imagine these scenarios in which things are very almost clear-cut. My own professional background, and I've, I've spoken with my dad's medical team about this because he had a ton of doctors working on him, but particularly his cardiologists and his cardiologists, physicians, assistants. I've said, I had a blind spot heading into this for my own family's decision-making, which was I had, I had always assumed the scenarios I would be presented with would be very clear-cut. That is a situation I know doesn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> and I know professionally doesn't happen. However, I always assumed it would be that in my own case. And yeah. so what this opened up for me was my own lack of flexibility in an area I'm always talking about we need to be flexible about. And that for me yeah. has been a really interesting experience. It's not one I would have anticipated. So I think that when we talk about these technologies around life, end of life care, life and death, uh, dying, life-sustaining, life support, you know, it, it becomes a series of contingencies and scenarios that I think in many ways the world of evidence-based medicine can give us clues around. However, a lot of it just comes down to, well, what do you want to do? What do you think? And that becomes, I think, in some ways, one of those periods of conflict, you know, con conflicting information for me because i was always looking for like what do the readings say what you know what does his yeah. say what kind of brain activity do we have all those things they all supported that things were moving in a, a productive positive direction yeah i think where examples like that are perfectly illustrative of of why it makes sense to write a book like this with the memoiristic elements as opposed to somehow removing them because it just seems to completely, I don't know, remove a whole dimension of what's valuable about the field. Yeah, no, I agree. And I've already, I mean, I've already joked with Matt and I've said, you know, in the, if we get to a second edition or a paperback or whatever, <laughs> <laughs> I said, I already know what the first line of the epilogue is, Yeah, <laughs> which yeah. is my dad didn't die. Yeah, <laughs> and then yeah. and then go that you know what I mean but you know too it's so the, at the same time this is all happening you know there's another element of this which is my mom is has very early stage uh, colon cancer right and so she's she's having surgery in a few weeks to have that removed 
that is in early April. And so that is, you know, these are things that we have to negotiate with our parents as they age. But I'm also aware that I'm the the lone child now and the person who's been tasked with making these decisions and, you know, trying to balance these things out. And I think in my mom's case, it makes complete sense. Like she absolutely should have the surgery because it, it will extend her life. It's very early stage. If it's not removed, it would actually become a huge problem, but it's not now. So surgery makes great sense. So that's yeah. absolutely the reason to do it. And I think so that the, you know, the cancer doesn't escalate to the needing something like chemo or like radiation, which I, I'm, I know she would not want to do. And I would support that as well. In as much as I've, I know both as a bioethicist, but also as a science technologist, um, academic, and then on death studies academic, as much as I know that there are all these questions about like, what is life sustaining? What is not life sustaining? What is life support technology? I will, t- I will tell you, I had not really, I don't think, confronted those questions in a, in a, in a way that I would describe as very different than I had before until now. One text that you talk about in your book as having a huge influence on you is uh, Lynn Laughlin's book, The Craft of Dying, that MIT Press republished in April of last year, yes. featuring a, a new introduction from you that, that features in technology of the human corpse could you just talk a little bit about the influence that book has had on your practice and you know how it's influenced you how you differ from some of the stuff in that book that relationship a little bit lynn laughlin's the craft of dying which is published in 1978 uh is i think one of the foundational texts i would describe it as one of the foundational texts for contemporary modern death studies but it's also i think one of the least read or overlooked texts for modern death studies there's there would be a small group of individuals of uh, colleagues who would have been in death studies for longer a longer period of time than myself who would be familiar with it but i think it's a book that i think until mit press republished it now was not being read by a new generation of death yeah. studies academics and the reason i think it's so foundational is that that what we what we could describe as the contemporary modern let's just call it the death moment for lack of a better term. And again, this is a moment that's always happening. If I can tell you anything about the the public interest in death is that there's always a death moment happening. It just depends on yep. whether or not journalists describe it <laughs> in various ways. So it's always right. happening. And in the 1970s, however, there is a shift. And the 1970s is reflective of some key shifts we've already talked about, which is what, what's one of the big shifts. Well, life support machinery becomes a huge thing. Life support technology becomes Becomes an enormous shift in what we can, what we in the West would consider questions about well, what is dying, what is living, what are all those questions, and so there's a whole number of big shifts in both biomedicine, biomedical sciences, life support, any number of things, uh, and suddenly there's this idea that you could extend life beyond limits that had been in existence before through machines and through technology. And that sets in motion then an enormous field of study around human mortality. Now, I also think in the U.S. context, this is this is a, a product of reaction to the Vietnam War, and indeed, I think one of the one of the books that's often heralded from the early '70s, um, Ernest Becker's *The Denial of Death*, which I think unfortunately becomes sort of the canonical text from the '70s, but I, which is okay. Um, I, I think Becker is wrong on a lot of things. Uh, which is heresy, depending on who you talk to within death studies. Um, but I, I think that what Becker, I think what Becker writes in '73 is a very good critique of the Vietnam War, 
and it makes complete sense in that um, context. However, Lynn Laughlin in the 1970s, young sociologist, University of California, Davis, I believe, yes, UC Davis, she is interested in this, if you will, this death moment that's happening in the 1970s. So sociologist that she is, she decides to survey it. And, and what makes her book, I think, so valuable is she's in the middle of this moment documenting the 1970s in the 1970s and creates a book that both is a critical engagement with a number of deaf movements that she she describes of the deaf acceptance movement, the natural death movement, um, the death with dignity movements uh, that exist. Uh, but what she does is what she says is death, death has now become a social movement. And it's become a social movement that's very much in line with the other social movements of the time in the 70s, that would be the women's movement, second wave feminism, and for example, the early environmental movement. And that that in this in this death of social movement moment, it's creating a whole new rethink of what death and dying can become. So it's in the late 60s that we finally begin to see the emerging proliferation, although slowly, of of spaces called hospices. Uh, because hospices were a radical notion in their time, which was it's a space where people enter and they know they're going to die that there's no other way to describe what's going to happen ultimately in something like the hospice. And that was a radical proposition. But what she'll say is, and I think this is the thing that all of us who work in death and dying today need to keep in mind, and this was where Lynn Laughlin's book became the most valuable part for me. She'll describe that there'll always be a thanatological chic. And thanatology is the sort of the fancy way of saying the study of death, taken from the Greek word thanatos or thanatos for death. And that thanatological chic is something that gets picked up um, she'll describe in part by the, the, what she would describe as sort of the upper middle classes as this topic of, of constant interest. And, and the thing is, I think her book has only gotten better with time. Like, I don't think she got right, anything right. wrong. It, and indeed in speaking with my, my, I'm about to say something I never thought I'd ever say really, but it always happens. My younger colleagues <laughs> or, <laughs> or grad students, <laughs> let's stick with grad students for a second, who are, who are working on in the field of death and die. They're reading the book and they are amazed at what she has picked up on in the seventies and how, if you squinted just right, you would say she had written that book last week. Because what she tapped into was just a profound series of social movement politics and ideologies that continue today. Was there an overlap between what she observed and wrote about and kind of and um, things like the kind of radical psychiatry moment? Was there an overlap there between those two? Sure, things? absolutely. So, so. I well, I also want to suggest that I think the 1970s are having a big moment. Yeah, and this is something again that that. Matt Brown and I have talked about the 1970s <laughs> yeah. seem to be having a moment right now, which I don't, I actually think makes some kinds of sense. Cause I think that, that there, there's this, I think, understanding, let me give you another idea. What's one of the things that comes out late seven, late sixties, early seventies around death and dying, but also psychiatry. And here we have a merger, which is there's a, there's an idea that something like hallucinogenic drugs the cyclocylabin mushrooms could be used to help people in grief and bereavement. That's in the late sixties, right? Yeah. Uh, early seventies. And then it never goes anywhere because these drugs then are all outlawed banned, and we enter into the war on drugs. We've now yeah. fully returned to that now as there are these, there are these drugs that 
could possibly be used and quite likely be used to help people who are experiencing severe grief and bereavement and may not be as detrimental as some of the drugs that are used now if they enter into periods of depression. But that the research just stopped. And if you go back, you can go back and read, um, and these were big articles in the New York Times in the 1970s that were they were writing about these possibilities. So this was all you know, front page, you know, national newspaper type stuff. Yeah. And I think that when we talk about a kind of radical rethink of psychiatry, a radical rethink of psychology, um, any kind of, if you want to think, radical rethink of whatever it might be, a lot of that is happening in the social ferment of the 1970s and death and dying are 100% part of that. Absolutely part of that. Now, I think that there's there's a there's a legacy of tension between death studies and then psychology and psychiatry, in part because there have been differences in arguments around Freud's take in the psychiatric model or neo-Freudian take on death and dying, but also then what we might describe as a whole sort of genre of literature and, and medicine around discussions around death and dying, but then also too in psychology and what death and dying means or, you know, how it's understood in a psychological model. I, I think that those debates all start in the 1970s, uh, but they, yeah. but they continue today. Okay, great. Yeah, no, I, I would just, I would encourage, I would encourage everyone if an author can ever say, I would encourage you to read my book. <laughs> um, <laughs> of course. But for two reasons. One is I think I would encourage anyone who wants to read my book to read my book because I think it offers a broader context, but also pitch for reading Lynn Laughlin's book. But also to then at the end of my book in the coda, where I talk more again about my sister dying, there's a whole section on how to think through the questions you need to uh, ask yourself and your family members about end of life care, but also funeral planning and final disposition of human remains planning. And I, I would really encourage everyone to think through those questions and ideally even write them down. That's the best plan. And then also when you write them down, make sure your next of kin know where those answers are. Because a number of times I've encountered people who said, well, th th I've written this down. And then I'll ask, well, do your family members know where those answers are? And they'll say no. And I'll say, well, <laughs> that's that's a problem. They need to know where to find this information. So I would, I would recommend everyone go through those questions and just make sure the people who will have to make the decisions know what your thinking is. And you can change yeah. your mind, but that... <laughs> You know, you can change your mind. You're not yeah. my own sociology of death students. I talk about this. I'm like, you know, I know when you're 20 and you're thinking about, geez, do I want any kind of like life support or resuscitation when I'm, you know, like 50 or 60 and, you know, 20, you think, God, no, that sounds terrible. Well, you know, when you're like 40 <laughs> or 50, you're like, well, that maybe doesn't sound so bad. You know, maybe a little bit yeah. of resuscitation, you know, maybe, maybe a little bit of life yeah. support. Like, let's see. So your attitudes can change, your ideas can change. And, and I think that that is, we, we are only going to enter into a period now of increased great areaification yeah. of death and dying. And that there's going to be the need for even more flexibility, but also I think a greater understanding of the part of family members about there will not necessarily be any guaranteed outcome. And then it becomes a question of what is acceptable to the individual this outcome will affect as well as a family yeah. member. And that, that's a question that really starts in the 1970s. It continues today. And I think those questions have become only more challenging and profound. I mean, thank you for talking to me today, but also, you know, thank you for writing a, a profoundly 
moving and fascinating book. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that.